Well, I invite you to turn with me in your uh, Bibles to uh, 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter is uh, found all the way towards the end of the New Testament, really right before you get to uh, Revelation. So you can, can look in that direction. And if you also want to, I mentioned this last week, but uh, look in your worship guide to page uh, 13 as well. I'll just mention, as I, I stated last week, uh, really, we've got uh, a couple things I want you to see as you look at that list of our sermons in the worship guide on page 13. Uh, one is just that we've got a plan. We do have a direction we're headed this fall to walk through this book of First Peter. And the way I like to talk about it, and I don't know if it's helpful for you, it's helpful for me, is to put ourselves in the way of receiving God's grace through His Word. And so I just want to invite you, as you see that we've got a plan, to make your plans around that, to uh, plan to be here on Sunday mornings, to put yourself in the way of receiving God's grace through His Word each week. Uh, the other thing you can see, if you look at that list, is just a variety of topics that are laid out in 1 Peter. There's so many things that Peter speaks to that relate so very directly to our lives. And you can even see it just and look at the topics uh, that we have listed there. So I think it's really going to touch our hearts and lives this fall. And then the last thing I'd encourage you to do is, you know, take, take that page out if you want to. Uh, cut it out or rip it out and uh, put it on your desk, put it on the fridge, put it inside your Bible. Uh, if, if you're able, uh, come and, and come to worship uh, with some preparation. Maybe Saturday night, maybe Sunday morning if you've got a minute. Uh, try to sit down and read the passage that we're going to be looking at each week. You'd be amazed how that will sort of multiply the impact of the messages I share, even if you just looked at the passage for five or ten minutes beforehand and just had a little time to begin meditating on it before uh, I get up here and preach the message or whoever may be preaching that week. So that's a word of encouragement about where we're headed this fall. I invite you to stand as uh, I read aloud to us and you read along silently. First uh, Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 5, and we stand just in recognition of the beauty and the majesty and the truth of God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, that's undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You may be seated as you do. Let me pray for us again. Oh, Father, we uh, know that each one of us here is like grass, that whatever glory we might have is like the flowers of the field. Uh, the grass uh, fades and the flower fails, but Lord, your word stands forever. And as we see here, your salvation stands forever. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes, unstop our ears, so that we might hear good things for our soul today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't usually uh, start off our worship service time with show and tell. I'm going to do a little bit today, bring a few items out for you. I was thinking about this inheritance issue and uh, found a few things in the attic. Uh, our passage today talks about this inheritance that we've received. And I don't know if you ever get up in the old attic and root around and discover things that you hadn't seen for a while, but uh, it's interesting what you find. 
Uh, this right here, I won't get the whole thing out, and this is not a secondary plug. I'm not going to be able to do all this. A secondary plug for our fishing trip, but this is a bamboo uh, fishing, fly fishing rod. It's got multiple sections. About two or three of them are broken a little bit, but uh, this actually has a lot of meaning to me, although it's in a little bit of rough shape. Uh, given to me, I was probably about nine years old when my grandfather on my dad's side uh, passed away. It would have been for me the first time that I dealt with any kind of loss of that kind in our, in our family. And so I think, you know, my Grammy and others figured, hey, he's, uh, he's going through a challenging time. Let's pass on to him some of this gear. Might encourage a young man fishing stuff, hunting stuff, and so forth. So that's, that's what that is. And, and this over here is a lamp that uh, Patience loves to death. She just loves this horse lamp. So I, I did find it again in the attic, and, and I'll tell you how bad the issue is. When I walked past her in the house carrying it, she didn't know that I was looking for a sermon illustration. So I said, "Hun, don't worry. It's going back up there tomorrow. It's going back to the attic. But uh, actually, this, I believe, was my uncle's, my Uncle Gary. And when we were growing up, they lived in New Mexico. We lived in Chicago, extended family in Pennsylvania. And so, you know, we never saw them much, but it had been his and it was in my bedroom all of my growing up years. It was kind of a reminder, even though we didn't see them much. We always loved the time that we had with them, and it was a reminder of, of that relationship. You know, maybe you've got some things like that that you've inherited. Uh, it's nice to inherit things, isn't it? It's particularly nice if they've got some meaning like these things. It's nice, too, if they've got a little bit of value. That's, that's not too bad either. Uh, but I've noticed something over the years, and you saw it as, as I was handling those items. The things that we inherit in this life are all breaking down, aren't they? You move a couple of times, you put them in the back of the attic, have a little leak here, the elements get to them, start to fade, start to perish. What a beautiful thing, then, that our passage reminds us today that the things of our salvation are imperishable, that they don't fade at all. I mean, think about all the things in our life that, that do fade, not just things we inherit like this. Uh, maybe like you, us, you've had that experience. You've got a, maybe a separate fridge out in the garage to keep some of the items from Costco and so forth. Ever leave that door open accidentally a little bit overnight? Wake up in the morning, $150 worth of groceries are gone. Things are fading. Things are lost easily. Even uh, more intimate are relationships, friendships with one another. You ever have one of those friendships that you kind of think, you look back, and you thought, man, I was, thought that was going to last forever. I thought we'd be best friends forever and start to drift apart, start to drift away. A lot of things in life are uh, fading. Not many things that are imperishable. This passage reminds us of the beauty of our salvation, that it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. And so I invite you, if you want to follow along uh, with me a bit, you can look at the notes section in the back of your worship guide. And it's just got this main idea I want us to meditate on today, that, that we wait for an imperishable hope. We're going to talk about that waiting. That's going to be one of the big things I want us to talk about. And so we ought to live in daily praise for our salvation. The Lord invites us to live in daily praise for our salvation. And let's talk about that for right off the bat, uh, this living in praise for our salvation. Look with me at verse 3 in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
Peter's starting out. Now, he did his little introductory words last week. We looked at it in the first two verses. But this is his first, you know, he's beginning to share what he wants to share with them now. And isn't it fascinating that the first thing he says in verse 3 is, Blessed, or praised, or uplifted, or exalted, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting uh, from a number of standpoints. One, you've got within just the first three verses of this book, you've got references to the triune God in several ways. Back in verses 1 and 2, it talks about uh, us being uh, called according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It talks about sanctification of the Spirit. It talks about obedience and sprinkling with Jesus Christ. And then here again, God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Our praise is up to, given up to the triune God because the triune God is the one who gives us all of these reasons to praise Him. Now, when we talk about uh, praising the Lord, uh, it's easy to kind of think in a sort of Pollyanna mindset. I was forced to watch that movie with my wife one time. You know, Pollyanna, she's a sweet little gal if you've ever seen that movie, but she's got this thing she wants to do. Everybody's kind of down, and I'll confess the preacher that's one of the key figures in the movie. He's kind of a down preacher. He's always preaching down and wrath and judgment, and you never hear any uh, grace and love and so forth. So she's got a a reason to be concerned, but her solution to that is what? The glad game. Let's all just sort of will ourselves to be happy, to be joyful, to be full of praise. And, you know, that's not all bad in the sense that, hey, probably all of us ought to look at our life a little bit differently and see all the blessings we enjoy. That would be good. But what I want you to see, when when Peter talks about blessing the name of of God and and when we think about walking in our daily life with an attitude, a posture of, of praise and worship to God, we're not talking about just a glad game. We're talking about being uh, impacted, being transformed uh, deep inside of us by the reality of our salvation, by the gift of it, by the majesty of it, in a way that, that, that then we are compelled, we can hardly resist, to walk through our day with a posture of, of praise, of thanksgiving to God, with a readiness to worship Him. That's what we're talking about. Now, does this mean uh, in your office cubicle you're going to, you know, all of a sudden every five minutes, you know, shout out, praise Jesus, you know, praise Jesus. And people wander over there and look what's going on behind that cubicle. Or does, you know, does it mean you've got to have a bumper sticker on your car that says something about praising Jesus? Does it mean you've got to have a, a little note at the end of all your emails that reference that? Well, I'm not going to say those are bad things, but again, this is about... Um, a heart attitude, a posture, a living out of praise and thanksgiving to God. Now, many of us, if you're like me, will say, you know, that sounds interesting. I'm not sure what that looks like. Or I've experienced that, but I'm having a real hard time getting to that place these days of walking in a life of thanksgiving and praise to God. I'm not sure what that would look like. And what I want to walk us through today is I think a sort of cascade effect or maybe building blocks would be a better way to look at it of why we struggle to really walk in praise to God for our salvation. And I think it's this. We don't really walk in a life of praise because we don't really see the majesty of our salvation. We're not meditating upon it. 
And we don't see the majesty of it because we don't see it as Paul or as Peter describes it here as a living hope. It's not vibrant to us. Not transforming in that way. And we don't recognize it as a living hope because we've got to wait for it. Peter says, as we're going to see in a minute, that we have yet to have this realized for us. And we struggle to wait for it because we're not really sure that it's permanent, that it's actually going to be be happening, that what Peter says about it being undefiled, unfading, is really true. I'm going to try to pull those blocks apart a little bit. And again, we've got our praise and salvation stacked on top of those blocks. And let's take a look at how Peter wants us to see them built together and supporting one another. First thing we see is that he, just, he wants us to understand and recognize the majesty of our salvation. Look with me in verse uh, 3 there. He says that all of these things that we enjoy in Christ are according to his great mercy. You ever think about mercy? What is it? It's, it's not getting what we deserve. Now, if we don't understand, if, if we're not really cognizant that there is a God and that that God rules over this world and that that God is holy, then this will be hard to grasp. But if we're even beginning to understand that concept, then we'll see that our lives don't compare to his righteousness and to his holiness. And we'll realize, okay, maybe we do deserve in and of ourselves judgment, even wrath. And when you get that baseline, begin to embrace that reality. I know it's a hard one to swallow. Then you begin to see, oh, this mercy I've received, the fact that I don't get what I deserve, that God holds back, is incredible. Is incredible. It's a beautiful thing. So we see God's great mercy displayed here. He goes on, he says, he's, he's, uh, according to this great mercy, he has caused us caused us to be born again. We talked about this last week. I won't go back through the sovereignty of God and salvation issue, but I just want you to see right there it is again. God's the one who's initiating this with us. That's part of the majesty of it. He's the one that's causing us to be in this place of of having a relationship with Him. And then it says He's caused us what? To be born again. Now, that's a pretty loaded term in our culture. You use the phrase born again in reference to certain spiritual folks. It's a pretty loaded thing. So what I want you to do, and you, you may be aware of this or maybe not, but look back with me to John's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, back towards the front of the New Testament. Uh, we've got John chapter 3. I just want to read for you what all this born again stuff is in reference to. So we can understand it from the source instead of just from the pundits. John chapter 3 tells this account of this man coming to talk to Jesus and what he has to say to him about, again, this majestic reality that unfortunately is kind of a bad negative label in our our time. It says in verse 1 of John chapter 3, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs unless God is with you. Okay, so he's realizing some things about Jesus, but he doesn't realize the whole picture, does he? 
He doesn't really recognize who Jesus is. There's something great about him, but he doesn't understand the fullness of it. Jesus says this to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or born from above is another way to say it, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is a little perplexed by this. He says to him, how is it that a man can be born when he is old? And then he wants to get into the birthing logistics of it. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, he's talking about, you know, the breaking of water, physical birth there, and the spirit, got to have both, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Folks, if God is at work in our lives, and we've even begun to taste the majesty of our salvation is because of His grace that He's chosen for that wind to blow into our lives. And what would have just been flesh, that's all we've got to offer to the equation, has now been, by His Spirit, turned into something spiritual in our lives. That's part of the majesty of our salvation. With that... First couple of building blocks in place. Let's move down to what I think is is probably uh, one of the bigger ones for us and make some practical application about all of this. And that is this promise that we can have a living hope. If you look with me again at the end of verse 3, it says he's caused us to be born again into what? Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. A couple of things real quickly. One, we see again here, I mentioned it as I was sharing my different artifacts from the attic, the the perfection and the permanence of this hope that we have in Jesus, of our salvation, that it, it is undefiled, that it's, imperishable and 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 we go on if you read in verse 5 i just mentioned it it tells us that it's kept for us in heaven and that we who are walking in it by faith in verse 5 are guarded are being shielded ourselves in it that's part of this hope and then we see that it's comes to us by faith it's something we've got to trust in and it's a faith though that's looking to the future And that's what I want us to camp out on today for a minute and give us perhaps a few takeaways to to take home and really apply to our lives. The reality is that we want the stuff of heaven and all of its fullness and all of its majesty that we are promised and that we know we've got coming to us, we want it right now. We want it right in our lives right now, the fullness of it. And it is very difficult. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but if you apply this grid of this time of waiting for a living hope to most areas of our struggle spiritually, it will really transform us. Let me me put it this way first. 
You remember last week we tried to look at the life of Peter and map that over a little bit onto his letter, this first Peter. You remember, I think we mentioned it last week, when Peter is talking to Jesus in Mark chapter 8, it's recorded, and Jesus says, okay, here's the plan. Here's how this hope is going to come about. I'm going to go and suffer and die. That's the game plan. You remember Peter wasn't real big on that, if you've ever read that story. In fact, he gets in Jesus' face, the Lord of the universe, and tells him, that ain't the way it's going down. We aren't playing that game, Jesus. That's not what I signed up for. And Jesus rebukes him, says, get thee behind me, Satan. This is the way it's got to be. So it's obvious. It's a big issue. Well, certainly part of it is that Peter didn't like the whole picture of the suffering, the challenge that was going to come to his own life. But I think a big part of it, too, was that Peter wanted all of it right now. Jesus, I've left everything to come and follow you. I thought this was playing out right now. I thought we were doing it now. We're bringing the kingdom, all the fullness of it. And you tell me you're going to die and you're going off and this is going to take a while? There's going to be a delay? That's a hard thing to swallow. Peter struggles with it. We do, too. As we think about a biblical hoping and having a living hope, what I want us to think about, too, is that it's not, you know, hoping in Jesus is something. It's not nothing. It means something. But it's also not hoping in the sense that, yeah, I kind of wish that would happen. That would be nice if I get that job. That would be nice if I got that promotion. It's not like that. It's hoping in something. It's a disciplined waiting for something that we know is going to come, that we're trusting is going to come. How does that shape our lives? Let's walk through it in a couple of different areas. If you think about our wrestling with anger, just take that issue in our lives, and you know each of us has our different struggles. Maybe that's not a huge one for you. But when you're angry, or when we have fits of anger, or if there's that sort of low boil, like I seem to experience in my life, that just kind of bubbles along through each day, Isn't part of that anger fueled by the fact that there are things in our life that we're frustrated by? We want them to be complete and perfected right now. We want them to be this way, the way I want them to be. We're having trouble waiting for a future hope. We want it right now. What about the, and follow me on this one, what about the, the sort of, intertwining, maybe even codependency that we get in sometimes in our relationships with close family, with close friends, where we come to have such high expectations of that other person. And maybe even our identity is almost tied up and wrapped into that other person, that friend or that family member, to the degree that that we're placing a hope on them that they can't possibly sustain. There's no way they can bring that because it's only coming when we're in heaven with the Lord. We're waiting. We're in this in-between time. We've received some of all that salvation includes, but we wait on its fullness. What about politics? We're in a political time. Whatever your uh, persuasion might be politically, uh, some of us probably need to get more involved in seeing justice and truth uh, implemented in our national politics or local or whatever, But, but isn't there a danger for us too? That we want that kingdom to come and be perfected 
And aren't we disappointed, always, always disappointed in politics, not just because it's messed up and not just because there's depravity a lot of places, but also because we're putting an awful lot of hope in the things of this life, not remembering that the perfect kingdom is yet to come. We can map it on to areas of sexual temptation. I recently had a chance to reread uh, this book, False Intimacy, which is a great book that actually, uh, even though it addresses that specific uh, topic, it really relates to all of these issues and talks about the fact that really what we're aiming for in whatever ways we may struggle in that area is we're aiming for an escape of the pain and disappointment and loss that we have in our earthly relationships. Again, they never live up to the fullness of what we want them to be. So we've got to find escape. We've got to find a way, whether it's to the Fifty Shades of whatever, or whether it's to the romance novel or the images or the thoughts in our lives, we've got to escape and run. So it it affects us. I'll touch on one or two more, and then we'll land this plane. What about our parenting? Not all of us here are parents, but some of us are. You know, the two tendencies I think we probably would all admit we see in our culture, one is uh, what I heard recently described as helicopter parenting. I've never really heard that phrase before. Kind of hovering is the idea, I think. And the other would be maybe sort of absentee parenting. Uh, All of it is uh, tied up again. If you think about our struggles, uh, the helicopter parenting says, I've got to to sit very closely over this child or these children and, and manage, sort of micromanage what they're doing because ultimately my hope is that through them I can perfect the things in life that are broken. I can manage their life in a way that maybe they're going to live in a better way or maybe they won't have the same things happen to them. And I, and I want to escape and find fulfillment in that little one growing in this perfect way. Or in the reverse, again, the, the challenge of parenting faces us. And we run away to our hobbies or our ESPN or to career or whatever it is and we have an absentee parenting because we're afraid of it. We know it's not going to reach its fulfillment, and we're afraid of that. We're struggling to wait for this future hope. Certainly our materialism would be that way, too. We say, I've got to build this kingdom now for myself and accumulate stuff. I've got to have it so that I can have the kingdom now because I don't want to wait for it later. All of these things directly relate to the call that Peter gives us to be able to delight in our salvation, to realize the majesty of it, and then to have that sit upon this reality that we've received mercy we don't deserve, that we, through God's action, have been caused to be born again, to have a whole new heart and life, and that that sits atop this living hope that we have, this discipline waiting that says, I know this is coming, I believe this is coming, so I don't have to run to all of these other hopes now to find my fullness. I can find it in Christ. One passage to read for you in closing, and you can turn there with me, is Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is just a little bit earlier in the New Testament from 1 Peter, so... If you get to like 1 Corinthians and so forth, you've gone too far. Hebrews chapter 9. Watch with me all the themes that we just talked about 
tied together, wrapped up, found in their fulfillment in Jesus Christ here. I want you to see this because it's so beautiful. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 15, says, Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Don't get an inheritance unless you have a death. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who has made, made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And then listen to these last couple of verses. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. It's not going to fade. It's not going to go out of style. He didn't have to do it repeatedly. As the high priest enters into holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed once for man to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for the work that you do each week in our midst. Uh, for the attentiveness even of the people here this morning. To want to hear your word. To want to know what it says. And we do give you praise and we ask that you would uh, inflame our hearts so that each day our lives would be informed by your salvation and the beauty of it in a way that we indeed walk. Not in a false facade of praise, but in true, deep thanksgiving and worship to you. And I pray particularly, Father, that you would help us to be a people who eagerly await Jesus, and wait for that with expectancy, but direct that expectancy to Jesus and not to so many other things that are perishable, that are fading, that don't sustain the weight. Father, we ask that you would do that for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.